Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Rusty Quill presents The Low Decks, a thrice forgotten deep dive. Episode 10 Writer's Round Table. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to what is for now our final episode of Below Decks, where we dig into some of the research, questions, stories, and generally tangential, interesting things that went into making Trice Forgotten. I'm Raf, my pronouns are she, they, and I'm the director of the series, as well as one of the writers. So by now you will have listened to the entire series and if you haven't it's probably worth doing that before you listen to this episode because we are going to spoil everything. (laughs) I'm so pleased to have with us today our wonderful guest Morgan Givens as well as Nemo. Morgan could you introduce yourself with your relationship to the show and your pronouns? Sure Uh, my name is Morgan Givens. I am one of the writers on the show and my pronouns are he him. And Nemo, would you like to say hello? Hi, it's me again, (laughs) Nemo. I say them pronouns. And the reason that we have Morgan with us today, as well as the pleasure of his company, is we are going to round out Below Decks by doing a little bit of a writer's roundtable, where we talk about the process of the show coming together, what it was like to break the story for this season, creating the show bible, and just generally all all of the -the behind-the-scenes magic that uh, I know everyone loves. So I'm going to kick off with asking Nemo and Morgan some questions, because the show began with them. So I'm going to give you the broadest possible question to start with. (laughs) How did this happen? (laughs) Why are we here? Serendipity? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's quite a funny one because I was working on it for quite a while by myself in that I like pitched it and then kind of was thinking about loads of things and then at a certain point Rusty Quill were like oh you need to like write a bible like a show bible so that when you bring other people on they'll be able to understand what the show is and I had never written one before and had already begun talking with Morgan by then I believe. Yeah yeah I came on right yeah. I think that was a show bible I, with all your dexterity and like the D&D like yes yes. Yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Morgan was essentially like just download everything that's in your brain onto a piece of paper and I was like okay I could do that. <laughs> For those who've never heard the term show Bible before, what does that mean? It's like a really cool template that says things like what the tone of the show is, 
shows that are like a comparison for it a debrief of all of the characters of the plot the episodes what the like audio atmosphere is some other things about like marketing but it's essentially a huge document so that anyone who's working on the show can find any information that they want about the show in it for me i was writing it in a way that because i knew i was going to have other writers working on it that you two could read this document and if you had a question like what would this character do in this situation that you could scroll to their like little area and be like oh right okay here's a little bit of their voice and here's a little bit of their desires in the world hopefully it worked out i mean you guys worked very well so it seems like it was okay no i I think it, it was far more than okay it was like really cool like like nemo said i was like whatever is in your head let's get it on this paper you know and then i kind of view the show bibles as like you know the rough draft of the story and then you're you're able to start chiseling it but the thing is nemo had all these great characters and this great story in their head and it was like okay now we're going to work together to chisel and refine and it, it it was more so about listening to what nemo had to say about what the story was and who the characters are and then working with them to make it as as sharp as we could before we were able to bring on Rafaela, who found all the little plot holes that we had missed, questions <laughs> about characters, mm-hmm. because at a certain point you become so into it. It's always great to have another set of eyes and very creatively to come in and be like, this is really cool, but why on earth would they do that? And we're like, you know, we don't know. We, <laughs> yeah. we should figure that out. <laughs> it's like building the mm-hmm. background of these characters. And a lot of stuff in the show Bible never makes it into the show but it allows us to create the depth for the world and who these people are so that when they do things, there's a sense of real motivation behind it. Even if you don't have the full history of these characters, we're able to write the dialogue, real dialogue, because we knew who they were. I was able to learn who they were by working with Nemo. And then, you know, it was nice to add little different things to them, like Alesti's being a foodie. I'm like, yes, you know, Mm -hmm. that's when you get to like put the decorations up. I think once you have the show Bible, you get to decorate it, if if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. As yeah, someone who kind of came into the show later, so the the show Bible was my onboard point into the series. I'd say a, a very successful document. It also shouldn't surprise anyone to hear at this point that as well as all of the things that Nemo listed that you would normally find a show Bible, there was a PhD's worth of oh, research so much. So in much. there as well. Like <laughs> so many links to so many YouTube videos Learn so and much. websites and like books <laughs> So much. Um, I think that was the thing I felt most daunted by when I came with I was like oh god am I gonna have to read all, all of this um, yeah at one point someone was like hey could you make like a shorter version of the literary document yeah I was like yeah okay I can do that and it still came out to like 20k and I was like hmm interesting <laughs> it well, worked out it's fine it's Right, and you also Nemo provided, I think, a Pinterest board as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, we're working in audio medium, but having, getting us all onto the same page visually was, I something I found incredibly helpful mm-hmm. coming into the series. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, I found it helpful because it at least I I realized I'm a much more visual person than I I realized, and I'm like, oh, duh, you love to read. Of course, that's a visual medium. <laughs> it combined with the story bible helped me figure out the tone of their voices the way they might carry themselves, like seeing them all in that group 
picture at the top of this document that Nemo had. Like I was like, this is like the pirate family. And then I, you can start seeing some of those dynamics. You can start imagining those dynamics into those characters, which I think for me as someone who did not have them in my mind, I didn't, I could not see them in the way because I was not their creator allowed me, I think a, a glimpse into that, which I, I hope made it so that once they were starting to be written, again, they sounded like the essence of what Nemo had in mind for them and also like full, full people. Cause I'm like, dang, look at them. Like, especially Siva. And I'm like, they, they all like posing. It was like, I want to join, like, let me in, you know? So. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did draw a little like character lineup because I was like, I need to make sure that everyone understands that Noor is big. <laughs> like that's most of the reason why I drew it. I was like, Noor is like head and shoulders above everyone else. And everyone needs to visually understand that. <laughs> everyone needs to respect Noor. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And Nima, you also, I think, drew the ship as well. Yeah. That was something I found incredibly useful because see, when you're working on audio, the sort of spatial distances between things, proximity, incredibly useful when it came to directing the series as well, because things like, okay, well, if this scene takes place in Alessi's cabin, where is that? So how much can you hear the waves in the background? How audible are other members of the crew as they kind of go about their business? So having Nemo's sort of diagram of the ship and where everything is placed is really important. But also in terms of things like the crew, they kind of, they have their own cubicles in the lower deck but they're just separated by probably just fabric mm. or something very thin so you know even knowing that this is a space where everyone's on top of each other all the time and there there isn't really privacy this isn't like a luxury kind of steamer where you have your own cabin that that changes the dynamic in, in another way as well so all of that stuff in the bible then feeds back into how you write mm-hmm. the world and how the characters For move sure. in the world yeah it was it was definitely one of those things when i was first looking at ships and i made that diagram to understand how the ship would be layered up from a skeleton mm-hmm. kind of view and mm. yeah space is something that i just couldn't wrap my head around because i'm also very visual and was like i just don't have any concept i watched loads of youtube videos of people like giving their yacht tours and i think the netawansen is like closer in size to a large yacht than like i guess a lot of the sail ships you know the like kind of period dramas men on ships kind of thing they're on very big like british imperial vessels and that's not what the netawansen is it's a quite condensed ship and so kind of understanding how small everything would be and how yeah on top of each other they would be and they're all like collectors right and i remember writing that into the the bible which is that like once they start bringing stuff onto the ship, it's going to be a fight over, like, me or the stingrays. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I just thought that that was a good way to remember, even though it doesn't... I don't think it really play, comes into play so much in season one. A good mm. thing to remember is that, like, mm. they are people who've just met each other. They're not going to immediately know how to live with each other, and they will be tense oh, because yeah. of it. Yeah. <laughs> We know the downstairs, the downstairs of the ship. I, I've picked up so much nautical language <laughs> during the series. Hey, below decks. The, the, the name of this show. <laughs> we know that below deck in the ship, they're starting to vie for space. We know that there's, obviously, we've got our aquarium down there. And we know that Inez is building a bit of a laboratory mm-hmm. down there, as we find out in episode 10, an explosives <laughs> laboratory and, 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 and armory. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm very excited, like, because I, I do think that they have a little corner in the ship, which is literally just behind curtains, and nobody, everyone respects Inez's privacy mm-hmm. enough that they fully have just been, like, stealing gunpowder from places and have a whole, like, <laughs> weapons table lined up. Baker's like, you know, I'm not gonna, like, sneak in, look at anything. <laughs> and now yeah. I'm sure Baker's probably like, God, I wish I had, like, an elf on a shelf. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, season two, you've got to have some allusion to, like, Baker being like, don't let Inez behind the curtain alone. <laughs> Actually, I wanted to ask a question. I'm taking us back sure. a little bit in the timeline because, um, Nima, you, you talked on previous episodes about how this was started as much more of a food-based mm. story. So we wonder, what was the germ of this? The, the characters or the piracy or the sort of colonial critique? Where, where did it begin? Good question. So it came through a couple of different things, which was because I was working at the Natural History Museum and I was looking at all these fish all the time. And I believe this fun fact I've already said that I was looking at this jar and it said Alestes on it because that is a type of fish i was thinking about collections and i was thinking about a vehicle to talk about exploration and travel and i thought that food would be a great way into that i have to say quite because i really liked anime (laughs) um (laughs) like one piece and toriko which are like adventure shows where they do go to places and they eat food and that is a big like aspect of it and I thought but one thing that they don't really talk about in those is like how food links up to colonization and imperial expansion and as we've seen in episode eight tea is where that kind of lies I guess like it calcified Mm. a bit in that tea was brought by the British to India and South Asia from China on plantations so the idea of Alestes and to an extent Baker being interested in food is the kind of remnant of that in that they are the kind of people who are able to travel between places and eat new food. I mean, you know, that's not something that a lot of people could do at the time. And even though I wouldn't say that either of them are privileged people, they do have the privilege of trying new foods in different places. And I thought that that would be a a fun way to give us story arc. (laughs) And then everyone was like, you should actually talk about the colonization and the museum stuff. And I was like, oh, yes, that is probably the the bigger story here than the food. So the food gets to be the fun stuff. (laughs) And were were they always pirates? Was it always a pirate story in your head? They were always merchants, Mm. I think. And other people would make them pirates and the fact that they can't exist as like nautical merchants the fact that they have to survive doing criminal activity or like what people see as criminal activity mm. i think yeah that's where the change became it's just i find that so interesting because see when well whenever i'm telling people about the podcast i'm like oh yeah it's a queer pirate adventure that's what i go to 
first and again I don't want to kind of retread too much stuff but Nima you've talked before about your kind of love for the nautical epic but also this slightly queasy relationship with it and that was was it the way that it was sold to me how I came on board with this project because as you've said Nemo and Morgan you'd already been working on this for some time I was writing for Cry Havoc which is yet to come out and April our executive producers messaged me and said hey do you like pirates <laughs> why does that sound like the email that I got from April that was like what would you think about working on a pirate show and I was like who are you <laughs> But, you know, it's fun to think of the show and instructive to think of the show as in the pirate genre because I think that's the thing that alerts you to so many of the differences between Mm. this story that we're telling and, you know, what and who usually occupies the foreground in a pirate epic. And, yeah, as soon as you sort of go into, well, what if these characters are forced into, you know, being on the, you know, the quote-unquote the wrong side of the law, <laughs> kind of through necessity, That then I think it's a much more interesting way of exploring the kind of the, the moral side of mm-hmm. pirating, essentially. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it feels like it has a lot of parallels, I think, to the things that people go through today, you know, because I can at least speak to the United States, you know, they'll criminalize behavior. And it's like, but you're saying this is criminal behavior, but maybe if you actually gave people the food they needed, because there's no reason that people shouldn't have food. Like, it's a lot of times they'll look at the action without viewing the entire picture or the intent behind the action and just be like, oh, you're a bad person when it's really about maintaining power over these people who have, quote unquote, less than by design. And so... It's, it was really interesting for me to see these people attempting to get out from underneath the yoke of, like, this life and then constantly kind of getting pulled back in by the forces from their past. You know, Alessis is trying, you know, this whole, it's, it's her trying to escape so many different forces from her past, physical and mental and constantly just those tendrils kind of keep coming back and, and grabbing her almost by the ankle and slowing her down, pulling her back. And I, I see that with a lot of folks, you know, with our, our prison system. I mean, there's there's that that parallel is for sure there when we think about recidivism and incarceration. It's almost like she's incarcerated in her past. And every time she tries to get out, it's like, hey, hey, bro, mm-hmm. your boat, you know, and it's like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so, um, yeah. That was one of the ways it kind of resonated, at least with me while writing. I'm like you know, just tonally, thematically. I'm like, I feel like there are a lot of folks who are marginalized by society and not marginalized by any means who, who could kind of, if it's not immediately recognizable, can feel that. I mean, at least at least I felt it while writing, which was dope, you know, in a sad way, but dope. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the capitalism side of the equation as well mm-hmm. resonated with me in terms of, you know, we know what Alessis wants, which is a big pile of money and mm-hmm. a nice beach. And she's been set up to fail by the system that she's in. There's no way she's going to achieve the life that she wants, you know, l- legally, kind of by going through the, you know, just just go through the proper channels, which is a very, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very UK bit of racism. Yeah. Like, yeah, like Alessis at the beginning of the show, they are starving, mm. you know, and, I, and she's trying really, really hard not to steal from people and it is that decision in episode six question mark where she tries really hard to haggle but there is just no money because any trade that she's been doing she is disadvantaged in and 
Gammon, as we find out, has had this chokehold on markets. He's like a very successful pirate. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing, which is like making sure that nobody can succeed without his saying so. And like able to keep people from succeeding and that is what he is doing so mm. i've been so excited like to be able to talk about gammon slash graham obviously because yes. he's like at the end and and he is kind of the big boss but also like oh my god he's such a piss baby there's <laughs> more <laughs> people kicking him while he's down <laughs> But isn't that how it always is? It's always the biggest, blusteriest folks. And, like, you just poke them a little bit. They'd be like, mm, like a balloon just. <laughs> People like Gammon are puffy because they're not actually puffy. You know, that's what we say here. Like, oh, you're getting puffy. Like, you're swelling up. And he walks around constantly swelled up. But it's like you're threatening to the folks who have yet to be able to see you for who you are. At least is how I kind of saw it. And then once Alestes, from my view, once she started seeing him for what he was, that was a threat to him as well. But he, mm. he's so nasty, he couldn't let her go, mm. you know? Desperate to, like, keep the only person who, like, still saw him as anything good or positive. And, well, if I can't have her be thinking of me as positive, then she will still think of me. Mm-hmm. She's uh, gross <laughs> but man. you have heard of me yeah i yeah. loved writing gammon slash graham because all of those things are absolutely true and at the heart of him but he also has to be an effective villain um because i think very often you end up defining the central kind of concern of a series through its antagonist like they end up kind of embodying the kind of bigger existential forces that you're kind of fighting against and it was so fun to write the flashbacks to Alesti's past with Gammon and write that kind of slightly queasy parental relationship that's going on. And then, of course, write everything that comes after that as very heavily, I think, modelled on like an estranged parent-child relationship of like, you know, you can't pretend that the relationship never existed. And it's this spectre that kind of haunts all of their conversations. And so, you know, it's real when Alastair digs up the treasure and kind of finds the note from Gamma going, oh, better luck next time. That's a real betrayal. So that's to, to stick, give it, giving it emotional stakes as well as obviously gammon is representing a lot of political forces that are antagonistic yeah i read, so enjoyed writing that was episodes. great like those scripts were so cool and my question i was wondering if for for like the two of you was is that the first time that in y'all's minds or within the, the show that he kind of turned his cruelty on Alestes in a way that perhaps he hadn't before because yeah that's that's just interesting that that would be like the thing for her that is like I can't do this with you no more for it to have been like the treasure for that to have been such a big thing. But I I guess I was just wondering about how that would have landed for her if like internally. I I think there's it's up for interpretation in the, you know, we don't see a lot of Alessis and Gammon's past together. So you are kind of allowed to infer in the gap. And I think. This is sort of my my personal kind of canon about it. This is the pl- the place that I was writing from was, you know, it's quite possible that Gammon has kind of been casually cruel to Alestes because that's sort of who who he is as a person, but also 
he holds her up to feel so special which is such a powerful thing especially i think you know when you're at quite a formative age which we know that she was when she joined the crew and it's such a calculated bit of cruelty when he sort of betrays her with the treasure hunt and the turtles because it's harking back to what i think was a meaningful moment for you know in the past this kind of moment of just the two of them on a treasure hunt he's asking her about you know what do you really want like he's kind of that's the beginning of him being like oh she's going to be my heir and kind of you know she's gonna she's sort of my daughter that I never had and then to take that moment and use it to just kick her when she's down I think yeah it's a very deliberate bit of cruelty and I don't know this is maybe where I get more kind of this is my head canon. I don't know how much Gammon would have thought that through as to how it would land on her like I don't think he's like a master chess player or anything I think he's just sort of like this girl i'm so pissed at her i'm gonna you know run away from my crew will you <laughs> well how about this uh, may, maybe a bit of an attempt to kind of remind of like you know you're you're not better than me you belong down in the dirt with me i do like as well that like this episode with the turtles i remember at some point someone was like can we change the turtles to something and i was like no absolutely not like part of it is lsd's being quite desperate about something with a very childlikeness and i think i've mentioned before that Alestes hasn't been allowed to be a child yeah. like ever and like has always had to be fighting and always had to be an adult and the fact that gammon effectively ruins the one kind of like child mm. like Alestes is on a pirate treasure hunt with someone who is being really nice to her and is about to like share loads of money with her and she's like hell yeah this is like a child's every dream right like we've got these turtles and they're magic and we're going to take them to the treasure and we found this huge belt of treasure and it made everyone really like me and it was really cool and to specifically use that memory against Alestes I think was really pivotal when I was reading these scripts and being like that is the most knife in the back thing that gammon could do to her which is take the one good memory of being allowed to be childish and to completely ruin it for her forever yeah especially knowing he would have known what happened to her as a small person he would have gotten that even though as you said he's he's barely playing checkers you know but (laughs) that makes total (laughs) sense and i totally understand why you were like "Uh uh-uh them turtles aren't going i was like all right bet (laughs) <laughs> Even just, just hearing you kind of say that, I'm like, I get that. There's that magical, that, that sense of childishness that, you know, and he, he, he ruined it and whatever good memory she had. So, man, Alestes needs a break, man. I just want to like, yeah, I want to bake her a does. cake or something, <laughs> you know, like some cookies, some glazed potatoes. I don't know. Like, she needs yeah. something. <laughs> well, we talked in our um, episode with Sam, our composer, about composing the kind of different bits for different characters and one of the conversations I had with Sam early on was when it came to Alestes like look there is something deeply childlike that's still within there is still a spark of that in her as much as well but that she's never you're absolutely Nima that she's never been allowed to be a child but holding on to the hope of it and we see that so much in you know she's hearing the song that her father used to sing her and kind of finding the plate and it's it's all about you know this is a very big like hero's journey Joseph Campbell that's kind of like but kind of so much of characters 
journeys often is like trying to find a route back to childhood which kind of never really existed in the first place for her which is really just but like you know even her thing of like i want to i want to retire on a beach with a big pile of money like again that's like what a 10 year old yeah that's That's, true it's like she got arrested where things began to go terribly wrong you know because i that's what trauma does it kind of arrests part of you you know, and you continue to grow, but then you build all these defenses to protect that little traumatized part. It's like she just kept getting parts of her internally arrested. And I think, yeah, that's those those parts come out, you know, despite her attempting to act like she has a hard edge. <laughs> and every time she tries to trust someone or like allows herself to trust someone, eventually miscommunications happen and it takes her back two steps again. Yeah. And, <sighs> Uh, well, well, while we're talking about traumatized characters, I was going to ask you about Siva next. Oh. So, especially because, Nima, you, you said that Siva was uh, maybe the first character that you kind of conceived, or the, well, the second character maybe, but like yeah. very early. So he's really intrinsic to kind of the heart of the show. So yeah, to, tell us about Siva and where he came from. Hmm. <laughs> Siva comes from, I think, my, as you said... In the show Bible, there is a PhD level of research. And I've said this in quite a few things in that I have this love-hate relationship with finding out about information. (laughs) And I think that Siva came from that, like, desperately wanting to impress people that he should not have to impress. Mm. And their, like, interpretations of him, like, the, the more intelligent he can seem and the better his maps are and the more research that he can do he can grow in like people's estimation or like he just like has that like hierarchy in his head where he's like this is what i'm reaching for queen's museum gonna get there and like that's what everyone that's not even what everyone wants from me just like that is where i should be aiming for because that is the ultimate of knowledge and experience and coolness and yeah, I, I think that Siva came from It sucks there. to realize in some ways when people kind of take advantage, I think, again, of the innocence of children and start to mold mm. them in that way. And, and that's kind of what that does when they because they're like they're trying to put boxes and constraints on the possibilities we have for ourselves. And so it's, you know, looking at Siva even throughout the show, it's like he's pushing towards these boxes that they put you know and he's pushing towards the edge of this while also it seems like he doesn't even realize he's also kind of simultaneously starting to dismantle that and it internally i can sense some of that you can i could at least sense him starting to begin even if he didn't realize he was questioning it to question it i like even though nani actually was kind of like hinting at those things didn't have the confidence to be like to, to fully say out loud what she wanted to say. Mm-hmm. And, and you see like hints of her being like, you shouldn't trust them so much, but also she's not in a great situation herself. Right. And I think there was a weighing up for her with like, well, maybe he can kind of quote unquote get out mm-hmm. um, or like make some money or, or make his life more than it could be here where, yeah. There's loads of stuff in, mm-hmm. in that as well. Um, and like the belief in the imperial system. But at this point in time, like Siva, like possibly did have an opportunity to not live in poverty his entire life by subscribing to these things. But that that through this series, he has people now like Alestes and Baker and Inez and Noor not telling him what to do, but 
to give him the fuller context of why people are saying these things to him and he can go to them and ask for advice and even his like you know autistic realization in episode seven and eight where baker is like people aren't saying what they truly mm-hmm. mean to you you uh, and he has to be like, oh, right, okay, that's weird. <laughs> why wouldn't they? <laughs> like, why wouldn't you say what you mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And all of those kind of things. And yeah, I, I think he was a good vehicle for the screwed up nature <laughs> of how it's still happening mm-hmm. in the 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> and and he and Alessis are situationally the same, right? Because they're mm. completely opposed in temperament, but they are displaced children yeah they both have parental figures but they are displaced children and that's sort of what this system does of kind of removes you from your roots and then in the case of siva kind of goes oh but you you could you could be the special one like you could try you could try and assimilate into um into whiteness essentially into imperialism and and then we'll hold you up as an example to everyone else to kind of go you look you see it's it's a it's a very like power protecting itself system that i think is present in both of those characters which maybe is part of why they're both so central Mm. even though temperamentally poles apart (laughs) but yeah they i think they do both see each other in each even if they're not they're 100 percent not aware of it i'm sure they are not aware of it but they work together as good season one characters that is why the focus is mostly on Alessis and Siva in, in this first season because they are coming from the same place and they need to get to a similar place. But the way that they've got about it is <laughs> completely. I guess that's why Alessis gets so annoyed with him. She's like, "If you don't get out yeah. my face, reminding me of me." <laughs> she's like shudders like oh god that could have been me i could have been the uncool version of myself Siva's cool, okay Siva is cool that's not fair to Siva. Yeah, yeah, yeah i i wanted to say like this is a tangent to mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. something which is that like i think that a lot of people maybe have underestimated how much you Morgan and Raph have done on this show as well because uh, and I basically wanted to highlight how much both of you have have done for it because I for sure needed so much help with like Morgan you had such a great way of conceptualizing audio that was really helpful at the beginning and when we were first sort of drafting out the episodes making outlines Morgan was there basically being like, but how can we make that into good audio? And I was like, yes, yes, that's a good point. <laughs> Things like the underwater scene at the beginning with Ndliswa like drowning and the like cannons or the, the thunderstorm above, like whatever we hear above, you being there and being like, it needs to be a like statement piece of audio. And I was like, hell yeah. And then Raph coming in after the show Bible had been created and, and Morgan and I had made these like outlines together. Raph basically sat down with me at one point and was like, okay, it has so many plot holes and I don't understand it. We need to go through and just, Nemo, you just need to tell me the answer to all of these questions. And I was like, I, I would like to just say, I did not phrase it. <laughs> no, you said it a lot nicer than that. And I am thankful for that. But that is basically what it was. And I, am, uh, I openly admit that it was like me being like, oh God, I don't That's know. That's why writer's rooms are important. <laughs> no, but I think yeah. honestly, it felt like, it felt like I got the easy job of kind of coming in and being the, yeah, being sort of fresh pair of eyes and just 
sort of going because what was so apparent is you know the world is so rich like i said the show bible is this massive impressive like brilliant document and the outlines were so detailed so i feel like i came in at a stage where it was like these are all the pieces that we have on the table and there's loads of them and they're all great so it was kind of and there were things i think through those conversations that we ended up going you know okay maybe we don't have room for that in this season maybe like we'll put that aside for the future or kind of actually we don't have to tell all of our stories at once um you know we can sort of keep our powder dry on some of this and also just you know the plot of gammon is graham graham is gammon and like where does nanny fit into all of this and kind of you know that's it's a a complex political thriller that you've created (laughs) it's kind of you know it's kind of a spy story you know alessius becomes a bit of a detective in in episode eight so i was also thinking yeah just putting my like my genre goggles on and kind of going how do we make this the most entertaining possible thriller adventure spy story as well as it being already a very fun science pirate story (laughs) I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to make science pirates a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> science pirates. Uh-huh. I We're believe science it. science pirates. And, yeah, and it was, like, really... It was really cool working with you two on this because I essentially, like... Before doing this show, had only been in, like, a couple of writers' rooms before and had never showrun or, like, been the lead writer and things. So definitely listened to podcasts, which were like, how to be a showrunner. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and the, the two pieces of advice that I definitely was, like, the most in my brain about was, like, treat other people how you want to be treated, which is just a good way of doing mm-hmm. it in life. And to be quite decisive about things <laughs> and just make sure you know what you're being decisive about, but then allowing the writers to have flexibility when it's their episodes. I learned if just about the writing process because the, the episode outlines that you provided were massively helpful, but then you were also very generous about kind of being like mm-hmm. very non-precious and kind of going like, but you know, d- d- but do what you want. And what I found was, you know, when you're writing essentially a 20 minute episode, you can't always fit in a sea story in that time. So it's sort of, what do we have room for? How is our A and B story going to, so these are really like basic writing things. So I apologize um, for this, but kind of how are our A and B story going to interact if they do at all? And if they don't interact, are they going to thematically complement each other? Which again, you know, all of these, none of these are rules. All of these things can be, played around with i remember one of the things i was most worried about writing the again it's the the treasure hunt episode because we also just knew like also this is the episode where we need to find out about baker's backstory and i that was one of the things i was like how am i going to tie together what is happening with alestes and and inez on the island and what is happening with uh, with you know why do we get to find out the Baker backstory and I think Nima you'd you'd already suggested kind of well you know Siva leaves the island because I can see Siva having a conversation with Baker but again I was like <laughs> how do we tie together these well so essentially we've got the two main relationships of the episode are Alestes and Gammon mm. and Baker and Gabe and neither of those relationships are yeah. in the present tense like nine, like yeah. neither of them are happening like in the same sense but in like in the end and this is something I'm going to ask both of you you as well 
in the end, I think I think that's my favourite episode of the the three that I wrote. So that makes it sound like I was going to ask you, what's your favourite episode of the ones that I wrote? Um, <laughs> yeah. That's not what I was going to ask. Uh, <laughs> All of them, okay? All of them. <laughs> no, uh, what I want to ask both of you is, what is the thing that you enjoyed writing the most in the series? Because for me, it's the Baker and Gabe scenes, which I wasn't expecting, but they just flew onto the page. They were just... You know, so like, isn't it magic when that happens? And you're like, I don't know why, but I'm gonna run with it. Um, oh gosh, my favorite. Yeah. See, I don't, I don't know if I have a favorite. I, I ended up with the episodes I think with a lot of random humor. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I really liked the Siva trying to find the rays. You know that that scene mm. where we can hear them in the water, and then we kind of go back to Alestis and, and Baker mm. talking and then we hear them and it was actually Nemo's idea to combine that a bit more than initially so that we could make that scene feel larger as though they were they're literally on the edge or somewhere on that ship watching you can hear these clowns in the background <laughs> and Nemo was like no we need to hear them and I was like you're right you're right they because that they're they're in the same space and so I, I really love that a, a nightmare to direct and sound. Sorry, so but it, you both. y'all look, when I listened to it, <laughs> no, I was like, right, "Oh my right. god!" I was like, "I can hear." I was like, "Yes, you, it's you all right like really because it, it, it is so hard." I think, especially for folks who are learning to write into audio, because it, it's writing is writing, but it, there's just like little things that you do kind of differently when you're writing audio primarily or audio forward. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, this is going to be a nightmare scene. But I was like, I can hear the sound design. I can hear that sense of movement. I can hear that shifting back and forth. And so I really, I really enjoyed that just because it, it made me laugh, especially when they come back up on there and like they've got it, you know, and they're like looking. I think it was just the moments of random bonding, you know, without them perhaps realizing that they were bonding. It was like team building while laughing and you trying to catch rays. And I really like... This is a cheat, but I I, lo- I love the fact that Alestes wanted to row that boat, you know, and that <laughs> <laughs> cracked me up. And it still cracks me up because, you know, I'm right. I'm like, you think you're going to row a boat, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so... You're like holding a knife up. My favorite thing is like, yeah, the like cat with knife or like crab with knife just being like, <laughs> <laughs> just like chasing after you. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess those are they're like kind of my favorites <laughs> to write. That catching stingray scene, a quick sidebar, is a really good example of again the beauty of a writer's room because to make that work and to get the kind of the size and the scale of that. I, when I was doing my kind of preparation for recording, I remember looking at that scene and going like, okay, we have to establish these two different locations super clearly because they're in the same they're in the same space but they're not in the same space and we're going to be cutting back and forth so I ended up I think like on the fly almost in the recording session just scribble down a couple of extra lines to just kind of slide in just to kind of just to plant it because this is also something I I found with audio is you can get away with being more explicit about kind of where you are than you need to be on screen because you know your listeners are kind Mm -hmm. of primed for you know a character to walk in and go ah well here we are in my granddad's <laughs> old shed. And like, not as, not, you know, yeah, not right, as broadly right. quite as that, but perhaps, but like, that was, a, I would say, a collaborative effort. Nemo, uh, this is almost an impossible yeah, question. Yeah, I was trying you. to like narrow it down, but I feel like because I have the luxury of now talking about episodes nine and 10, I do think that I really enjoyed writing Gammon's like cricket scene. 
where there's like the cricket in the background and he's also like being a piece of crap to Siva and Siva is trying to like haha yes I'm a servant <laughs> and also all of the scenes with Mary I found I really enjoyed writing her she's a character that I really I have fleshed out quite a lot her kidnapping Siva <laughs> every time they are together I am really like cat with knife just being like <laughs> Siva how are you gonna get out of this one <laughs> Siva got kidnapped again I laughed so hard and I was like <laughs> I have to say like at the beginning Siva did not get kidnapped this much but every time that Morgan and I would have a conversation Morgan would react like that and I'd be like <laughs> I'm gonna make Siva be kidnapped again so it's Morgan's fault that Siva gets kidnapped so much just so, so much funny. Joy. Like at a certain point, you're just like, "Oh, this is the joke." Like the joke <laughs> is you are always getting kidnapped. <laughs> like, okay. I mean, there are some characters who are just so good for you. Like, ah, oh, we need to show peril. <laughs> we're gonna put this character in danger. As we're gonna have to wrap this up. Any final thoughts? No, I had a, I had a blast in the writers' room. It was it was a lot of fun to just be creative with like other fun creative folks and like. You know, to to be trusted with something that you created, Nemo, as well, because I think we're all creative people here. We've all made our own things, and it can be hard to allow others to partake in something that you've created and to give that freedom that, you know, you did allow us to have. You know, there were moments where you're like, ah, ah nope, 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 nope. But there were, and that's like, that's your job as like the lead writer, as a person who knows this story. But you did give us a fair amount of freedom within those episodes to bring our voice to the episode while keeping it sounding like what Tries Forgotten was starting to sound like. So, no, I mean, I enjoyed working with both of you. I learned a lot working with both of you. And like, you need a writer for season two, you know where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, similar. I mean, this Below Decks has always been just a love fest, but the ability to have writers come in and fully understand who these characters are and to basically, yeah, please write me some things. And I got to have the content delivered to my desk and was like, <laughs> really talented people are writing things that I want to see or listen to. So You, you were the, uh, the sickos. Yes, yes. Yeah. Like, yes, yes. <laughs> And we got to talk about really cool things. And, and I don't think that we talked in Below Decks about disability yet, but mm. like, well, we talked a bit about autism, but like physical disability is something that hopefully we can explore more in season two and, and all of these kind of things that like the pirate genre, the nautical genre is full of. And hopefully we're, we've been able to talk about them in a way that we're all coming from from a like more lived experience yeah. perspective and a way that like hopefully people see themselves in and and yeah I've, I've been having a blast getting like messages from people who are just like really loving the, your guys work in your episodes and yeah the the writing and the humor and bah, love fest i love this show <laughs> um yeah and i love everyone <laughs> who's worked on it so yeah. i I love you too. Um, oh. <laughs> I'm going to ask one more question before mm -hmm. we wrap up, which is on, on our crew, you know, everyone kind of has a particular skill, a very special <laughs> set of skills. So I want to ask you, if you're on a Lesties crew, what are you bringing to the table? What's your, what's your position in the crew? What's your special skill? Oh, I am. I'm gonna have to be the comedic bard. Like they're just gonna have to. I'm gonna be like, look, Alessis, if you feed me, I'll make you laugh. I'll make others laugh, and we'll get paid. I'm just gonna be the pirate comedian. 
you put me on the stage i don't know whatever that that i think is what i'd end up doing it's just like i'm there for the chuckles <laughs> like they, i'm the guy they're like we don't know how you got here why you're still here but you're funny so cool you know <laughs> Like the Joxer, I don't know if y'all watch Xena, you know, I don't know, but Joxer would always show up mm. randomly and they were like, why are you here? And he's like, comedic relief, you know, so <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, you've done that perfectly for the show already. So <laughs> I think that I would attempt to convince Celestes that PhDs are totally marketable and that she should definitely give me like three gold <laughs> coins to do loads of research and I will 100% have like three books to sell and loads of people will buy them. 100% loads of people will buy them. <laughs> Raph? Yeah, what about you? Oh, okay. Well, I am a, a white femme person. So, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm Italian and Jewish, so I'm a, like a, a, a bit of a spicy white. But, like, what doesn't mean, like, <laughs> definitely white enough, I think, that maybe I could be their, like, weaponized Karen. Oh, <laughs> yes. 100%. Man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Next time Mary shows up, <laughs> y'all get wrapped. <laughs> A defensive white, out, quick, you quick. Get out Karen. <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant. <laughs> Go get our spicy white, y'all. We need her. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do think, like, I, you know, I, I think that um, we could definitely have you kind of be the first person to step off the ship um, to talk to all of the, like, import-export people and just shed a little bit of a tear and be like, oh, it was so hard to see as so a femme. <laughs> so terrible. And then everybody else comes off the boat after you've gotten all the paperwork. They're like, no, wait a minute. <laughs> Too late now. Too late, you signed it. What a great oh way God. to end. <laughs> oh, great. So we will wrap up there. Um, before we go, Morgan, where can we find you? And do you have anything to plug? You can listen to my podcast, Flyest Fables. It's a fiction podcast. Um, season so two. Fin- Thank you. Season two finishes. You know, end of this year, starting in about two weeks. Don't know when this is airing. So I'll say season two finishes this year. And you can find me on Twitter, if I stay there, at Optimus underscore Mo, like the Transformers. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Nemo, where can we find you? And do you have anything to plug? You can find me as ever on Twitter or on Tumblr. You can send me asks on Tumblr at Zeus underscore Japonicus. And I don't know, you can hopefully make my PhD marketable. (laughs) At some point, I'm finishing it and I've got to sell books. So (laughs) one day you should buy them. I will. I I will actually buy one of those books. Thank (laughs) you. You can find me on Twitter at Rafaela Marcus. I have nothing to plug at the moment. That's very nice. I'm just, I'm back to my desk. I'm back to writing at the moment. So maybe, maybe there'll be, maybe there'll be things in the future. So for now, it has been such a pleasure sharing these behind the scenes context episodes with all of you gorgeous listeners, spiritually blessed. Your skin is clear. Your crops are flourishing as are ours. (laughs) So we'll join me in saying goodbye to our (laughs) listeners for the last time for the moment. Bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Trice Forgotten is a podcast distributed by Rusty Quill and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Like 4.0 International License. The series is created by Nemo Martin and directed by Rafaela Marcus and was edited by Laurie Ann Davis and Catherine Rinella. 
Tries Forgotten is produced by Ian Gears, Laurie Ann Davis, and production manager Natasha Johnston, with executive producers Alexander J. Newell and April Sumner. To subscribe, view associated materials, or join our Patreon, visit rustyquill.com. Rate and review us online. Tweet us at The Rusty Quill. Visit us on Facebook or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.